0: Dear White People. Alright, let's do this. Welcome to the Table Podcast, this is Rob. On this episode we're going to be discussing Dear White People, the new Netflix series based on the 2014 film of the same name, which is now streaming as of this recording. Um, and, of course, we're going to have an encore after the credits for the first time in uh, quite a while. The, I think it's been since since uh, last time Freddie was on here, probably, was the last time we did an encore. Um, I'd have to check check my records. But first, you know, I actually coincidentally wound up watching two Emma Watson films this week. So I wanted to touch base on those two before I get into our, our whole Dear White People discussion. So first one was Beauty and the Beast. I finally got a chance to see this one, despite its billion-dollar box office gross. I don't even know how I avoided it up to this point. Okay, yeah, I do. I have an infant daughter at home. Um, but this one's actually the, uh, the remake of the 1991 animated classic, directed here by Bill Condon of Dreamgirls. And, of course, we get the same lovely story about Belle being held captive by the Beast, and they fall in love, and there's great music, blah, blah, blah. And we have a gifted cast this time. It really hinges on Watson here, who who still seems to be cashing in on all the mileage she got from playing Hermione Granger in this Harry Potter films for a decade. And her Bell really does feel in the same vein as, as Hermione. They're sort of modern feminist icons uh, that Emma Watson has, has imbued with sort of a, a nice balance of vulnerability and strength. Uh, we also have Dan Stevens here from The Guest and uh, Downton Abbey and things like that playing the Beast. Of course, 95% of the time he's in motion capture. Uh, for his performance, but he still did a did a great job there. And of course, Luke Evans, who everybody seems to love from everything else, including I mean, well, Kai at least has a has a little bit of a crush on Luke Evans. Um, so he's great here as Gaston. Um, you know, plus Josh Gad, Ewan McGregor, Ian McKellen. I mean, it's just like across the board. Kevin Kline, uh, amazing uh, live action and vocal cast for the CG characters, of course until the end. Spoilers if you've never seen Beauty and the Beast. Um, but of course the new songs here were mostly solid, which was a nice surprise for me. I especially liked the one Evermore, the Beast's new song. I'd heard a lot of stuff on pod- podcasts uh, before seeing the film that were sort of mixed on the Beast song that it felt like uh, it felt like it really padded it out, but I thought it made that that moment and I'm not going to spoil exactly what moment it is those of you who haven't seen the film yet, which at this point, like I said, it's made over a billion dollars probably at this point if you're going to see, if you're wanting to see Beauty and the Beast in theaters you probably already have unless you're me and then you just saw it this week but I thought that that, that, uh, the Beast song turned that moment into, it really made uh, the emotional impact of that moment really hit home in a way that it never really did in the animated version they just sort of skate by, skate by it, and then you know there's a whole series of events that happen in the third act. There, um, the character designs here for the CG characters, of course, being Lumiere and Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts, etc. Um, that was sort of off-putting, off-putting to me just from when we saw the initial photos and all the marketing for the film, and I was wondering if that was going to change when I saw the the characters in context, and it didn't really. I still feel like. Um, the fact that the, a lot of the characters, with the exception of Cogsworth, basically just have human faces sort of appearing on the objects that they are. For example, Mrs. Potts, instead of having you know her eyes on the sides of the spout, and the spout sort of being her nose, it's just sort of a face kind of painted onto the side of a teapot. So I thought that it was very unimaginative um, character design-wise, and they, they could have done a whole lot more with it. Cogsworth is probably the most interesting Uh, And then there's a couple other ones, there's a couple other supporting characters, the wardrobe uh, and the organ that were were more fun and a little more, you could tell there was a little more ingenuity went into uh, designing it, but that kind of threw me off. Um, But uh, other than, you know, other than a lot of the elements of the film that worked in the 1991 version, there's really very little that this one does that improves upon the original. Um, There's some narrative fixes uh, involving the Enchantress, and uh, some of the plot holes involved in in the original film that that get addressed here, I feel like Bell is made a much an even stronger character as a result of some of the changes. I feel like um, they have eliminated or at least downplayed the uh, Stockholm syndrome argument of the film that she only falls in love with him uh, because of the situation at hand. And I and I think the movie takes some decisive steps to rectify that, sort of in the way that. Jungle Book and Pete's Dragon made some updates and changes. Well, Pete's Dragon was kind of a completely different movie, so I guess let's focus on Jungle Book, which made a lot of... That one made a lot of changes as well, but I feel like uh, Jungle Book, the animated version, is not as strong a movie as the Beauty and the Beast animated version, and so there wasn't really much that the live-action Beauty and the Beast could do to improve upon the, uh, the source material, whereas Jungle Book... Uh, if you watch that film, it's kind of 90 minutes of well not even nine, it's not even 90 minutes first of all, it's kind of 70 something minutes or whatever of just kind of meandering animals and and yeah, there's songs but some there a lot of them are inconsequential and narratively there isn't a whole lot a lot of weight given to Mowgli's story in that animated uh, show or film. And the live-action version, I think, made Mowgli a much stronger character. I've talked about that. You can see on uh, on um, the website, on crookettable.com, you can see that I did a video review of the Jungle Book when it came out. Or or go to YouTube and search for Crooked Table, Jungle Book. And uh, I feel like they gave Mowgli a lot more agency in the live-action version, um, as well as all the effects work and the character design and, and the amazing... Oscar-winning visual effects that they pulled off there, which Jon Favreau is going to presumably duplicate with *The Lion King*. But *The Beauty and the Beast* didn't really—I mean, visually, it was—it was interesting. It was—it was fun. It was in the spirit of of the original. But uh, even from a visual standpoint, there's nothing in there that can compare with the sort of scope and uh, wonder that you get from the original animated film. Um, the casting here, even. Um, none of them. None of the performances really, really, you know, replace the animated cast. Sorry, Emma Thompson, who did her best, Angela Lansbury here, sort of a, trying to do like a Cockney accent. Uh, she's not as good as Angela Lansbury. Emma Watson, sorry, sorry, Emma Watson, but Emma Watson does not have the same vocal range as Paige O'Hara. So a lot of, a lot of the, uh, if you're just going apples to apples. Beauty and the Beast animated Beauty and Beauty Beast live action, it doesn't compare. The the animated version is far, far superior. And it makes it only it makes it even worse because some of the expansions here feel really unnecessary. Almost as if the studio was trying to justify the entire production by adding another 45 minutes of, of runtime. Uh, there's elements in here that that really seem to come out of nowhere and I, I think probably could have been excised easily. The film is over two hours, not much over two hours, but the two hours and nine minutes. And it should have been more like 145, maybe. If you wanted to expand it out a little bit, add some more songs. Add especially the one for the Beast that I mentioned, because in the original animated film, he sings, I think, a couple lines and something there, and that's about it. So I think that they uh, they actually went a little too far with trying to update it. But still, all those quibbles aside, I actually saw the film with my with my daughter... And she's only four, almost five months old, Uh, and she actually didn't even cry or anything. And and she she was kind of honed in on the film the entire time. This is the first time that I've taken her to a movie without Kai there, just me and me and my daughter. And uh, there was a lot, a flood of feels kind of washed over me. Just you know, not only me watching a movie in theaters that I, uh, an adaptation of a previous movie that I saw in theaters as a child myself, but taking my daughter to see to see this this version. In the theater was it was a really really f- um, memorable experience. It's one I'm going to remember. So even though Beauty and the Beast live action 2017 was sort of a flawed stab at retelling the classic fairy tale, it, it does retain that same old magic. And for that, I'm going to give it a 3.5 out of five. There's still a lot to love here. And if you absolutely adore the, the original Disney animated version, um, you definitely want to see this. But don't expect it to to you know surpass um, the 91 version because it's not it's not really prepared to do that So moving into the second Emma Watson film I saw this week and it's just weird happenstance the way that this happened So the circle the latest movie from director James Ponsolt, who did the end of the tour Came out this weekend um, and this one Watson plays a young professional who lands a job at a tech company That's basically an Apple Google Facebook hybrid named the circle hence the title run by Tom Hanks' character. And in the film, Ponsult really seems like he wants to make a social commentary about the dangers of taking technology too far. And And there's a lot of premise... Uh, a lot of premise. A lot of promise in that premise. Uh, a lot of promise there. But the script is very meandering. The characters' arcs feel very undeveloped. It just takes on way too much. I mean, even in the first half of the film, it, it was introducing elements and characters that seemed to me to j- just kind of be filler it's like why did we need all this information it's almost like the film is trying to distract you from how little substance is actually there beyond the surface level of technology scary guys watch out um which you don't need a two-hour movie to, to get that point across you could have handled that same theme much more elegantly and uh delved into the ramifications of that, or exploring it from different angles, or 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 demonstrating how complex that issue is, and there are moments in this film where the technology, the fact that privacy is essentially a thing of the past, which let's be honest, this isn't that that far from the truth. Um, you could see the elements of why that would be a benefit, but also why it's kind of her horrifying reality in part right now, and how it you know it becomes like kind of a dystopian thing, but. <clears throat> Excuse me. Emma Watson's performance here is is serviceable, but her character's arc makes little to no sense. Um and, and kind of evolves. And, and evolves is a really kind way of putting it. She's sort of on one side of of the of the uh argument, I guess, about the technology, and then 2 seconds later we jump in time and she's total and totally 100% bought into uh what the circle is doing. And then sort of, you know, kind of (laughs) gradually, I guess, realizing whether or not she's in over her head or blah, blah, blah. I don't want to give too much away for those of you that that want to see it. But it it really has, like, the flow is is all over the place, and it's very uneven. And John Boyega, in in particular here, has basically nothing to do. I mean, he's in a few scenes, but he's mostly kind of standing around observing stuff. And it feels like his character didn't need to be there. Um... It just I don't I don't even know. I mean I mean he serves a purpose in the end, sort of, but there's nothing that we that's not that's nothing that couldn't have been assigned to other characters or characters could have been combined. It's just too much going on. It's like spreads itself too thin. And in a book that works really well. In a book you have three hundred pages or whatever to tell your story and to build it chapter by chapter by chapter. And it felt like this movie was so Slavishly devoted to Fitting every story element from the book Into the film That they just kind of rushed past things And never let anything develop naturally Story wise or character wise And because of that the ending Totally comes out of nowhere And is ridiculously implausible Um, Ultimately the film just kind of Winds up being Entertaining enough to sit there and watch at One time but overall it's pretty dumb And if you analyze it like For more than two seconds It pretty much falls apart and none of the none of the performances or themes and i'm going quotes because you know the film doesn't explore those themes very well but none, nothing in this film is particularly special and considering james Ponsell did the spectacular now which i enjoyed and the end of the tour which i also enjoyed um and then we have emma watson john boyega Patton oswald karen gillen bell paxton in his final role Uh, Glenn Headley, who i always love to see her and stuff. And Tom Hanks, who doesn't really... Even he can't save this film from being anything more than just decent enough to pass the time. If it's hot out and you're looking for an air-conditioned space to be in, then go see The Circle. But if you're expecting a quality film, eh, maybe go see something else. The film had the potential to be something really remarkable and to make a very salient point right now in our society and how technology has become even more pivotal, pivotal uh, within it every year, basically it seems. But um, as far as the circle, it just really doesn't really, it, th- this, this is a story that should have been handled better and maybe will eventually be told in a better way. But I mean, this is honestly, if you're looking for something that handles this theme, Enemy of the State was more, was at least thrilling and uh, had a strong performance by Will Smith. That's the '98 Thriller. Um I would I would honestly hit that up on on streaming and, and pass the circle. If you're looking for a story to explore this kind of thing. Yeah, sure the technology in ninety-eight is dated, but at least you get a, an entertaining film and something that's a little more uh, a little less boring and a little more edge of your seat, which is what the circle I guess is supposed to be, but never really reaches there. Also, it to me kind of proves that Elder Coltrane, the star of boyhood, is kind of a subpar actor because he's in he's one of those characters in here that kind of just there for most of it until his role in the story actually becomes apparent and he didn't really bring anything to it it's just my main takeaway from the circle is that the world will sorely miss bill paxton and uh, the fact that this is his final film is kind of unfortunate so um for the circle we're gonna go probably a two out of five so, again, if you're really dying to see it, by all means, go check it out. But don't expect much. Lower your expectations. Or, even better, wait till it's on, like, TBS. If people still flip through cable to look for whatever's on on a Sunday. Because this is, that, this is the perfect kind of movie to put on while you're doing dishes. Or while you're folding laundry on a, on a lazy Sunday afternoon. Well, that's not lazy. I guess you're folding laundry. See, now I'm questioning whether or not I'm spending my Sundays appropriately. Anyway, <laughs> this is that kind of film to put on when you're like background noise, it's ambient because it's not entertaining enough to, to uh, warrant your full attention, in my opinion. So with that, we move into our feature presentation, my review of the Netflix series, Dear White People. Dear White People, here's a list of acceptable Halloween costumes. Pirate, slutty nurse, any of our first 43 presidents. Top of the list of unacceptable costumes, me. Wow. All right, for so relax. so banda. Alright, for those of you who haven't been listening to the last several weeks of episodes, we have a new format for reviews that we've been doing. We're going to talk about the hype, the story, the cast, the production, and then finally the verdict. So, let's go into Dear White People, the new Netflix series, The Hype. First of all, you can read my full written review on the show over at WeGotThisCovered.com. I'll put the link in the show notes below. So, Dear White People is the TV show based on the 2014 film of the same name, one which I enjoyed quite a bit. It didn't—I don't—I don't think it quite hit my top ten of that year, but I didn't even see it until after I did the top ten, and it squeezed into my honorable mentions. So, it was one that I enjoyed a lot upon my first viewing, and one that I actually rewatched um, in anticipation of watching the show. And uh, yeah, it's a—that's a—it's a great film. That's easily 4.5 out of five for me. And uh, so this show uh, is from the same creator of the film, the writer-director Justin Simeon. He takes the lead here. And like the movie, but you know to a greater extent, since the film's indie status really helped it kind of fly under the radar, The show has been surrounded by controversy based on the teaser trailer that Netflix re- released for the show a few months ago. Again, you can find the link for that in the show notes. That was actually also the audio you heard a moment ago. And basically the film's third act kind of centers on <clears throat> a blackface party at a on a college campus and the the teaser trailer basically announcing the date uh, that the show is going to hit depicts a lot of that black blackface and a whole lot of angry black people but it doesn't really give you the context of it so because of it people were really losing their minds over over that teaser trailer being like Dear white people is racist against against white people. And they're kind of deriding the show already. Oh, I'm canceling my Netflix account. And people, were, and people were screenshotting their, you know, canceling their Netflix account in protest. Because apparently we're in that age now where everybody feels like they have to boycott everything. Which is kind of ridiculous and childish if you think about it. So, but is the show, bottom line, is it really the racist propaganda that some outraged web servers took it to be? Not at all. That takes us into the story. So, I'm not going to do spoilers on this since you have 10 episodes to catch up on, and unlike a film, you know, you sometimes that's you guys, not everybody can binge everything in a day. So, I'm going to I'm going to try and stay away from the details here story-wise and kind of give you the broad strokes and my thoughts on it along the way. So, for those unaware, the film and the show Dear White People It's set at a predominantly white Ivy League school called Winchester University and the film followed four main characters, all black students, attempting to find out who they are and who they want to be perceived as amidst the mounting racial tensions on the campus. The film actually concludes, like I mentioned, with the blackface party and the show picks up the story from there, sort of retconning certain aspects of the plot and the character dynamics along the way. And then, unlike the film, the show has a little bit less of an ensemble vibe. Um, There still are many, many scenes where a lot of characters are are interacting, but it does shift perspective from every episode, um, kind of allowing different characters to take the spotlight, but also, in my opinion, slightly undercutting the group dynamic a bit in the process. Um, The show is not racist, though, and I'm I'm a white man, white heterosexual white man, and I was not offended by this at all. In fact, I found it fucking hilarious. Um... The show and the film, to be to be honest, um, but the show is not racist at all. In that it, it features a it, it features a wide range of views on race among its almost universally black cast. I mean, yeah, there are white people on the show. Are they minor supporting characters? Yes. Does that mean that they're racist or that they're portrayed as stereotypes? No. And within the black the the mainly black cast, because again, this is that's the story that this is trying to tell. Uh, there are a wide range of viewpoints of uh, you know complicated emotions about how to react and how to, how how they should they should deal with society and the racial pressures put on them and should they act out against it or should they kind of go within themselves or if they sh- should act against it how should they act against it in what way and what in what sh- you know in what manner and what means should they should they try and be heard. Um, without, you know, kind of slipping into becoming a stereotype themselves or, or kind of doing more harm than good along the way. And, uh, is, it's, you know, is some of that exaggerated in the show? Sure. Because, because deep down, dear white people, not so deep down, dear white people was always conceived as a biting social commentary. This is a satire. And I think the people that saw the teaser trailer and flipped their shit, thought that the show is just depicting, look at the white people and how they're, they're racist towards us and the black people are pissed about it. And like, well, yes, that's an element of it, but it's way more complicated than that. Um, and anybody that had seen the film, as I had, would get that. And they wouldn't be all up in arms for no reason while lacking all the information. Uh, but the show delves pretty deep into what it means to be black in modern America. That was the whole point. In fact, that film, the original film, was sort of promoted as, you know, social commentary on race in the Obama age. Because it did hit theaters in 2014. This one just continues that theme and deepens it now with 10 episodes of content. So that's uh, actually half hour episodes. So five hours versus the two hours that it had there. and it, And it dovetails off of what the film had to say in an interesting way. So uh, we actually have Barry Jenkins here even. Yep, he of Moonlight fame, and of course you can listen to my Moonlight episode to hear all my thoughts on that film. He even steps up here and directs an episode, what is likely to be a standout for viewers. And I wrote this in my review weeks ago, and I've I've had it in my notes here to make sure that I mentioned, to say that that Barry Jenkins, that's episode 5 of the series, for those of you who are wondering... um, to make sure that I mentioned that that was a standout episode. And I'm already seeing reactions on Twitter of people saying the exact same thing. And I couldn't agree more. That is, episode five is really a sort of a fulcrum on which the show kind of uh, pro- propels the rest of the season. There's something, I'm not going to spoil it, but something big happens there. Um, that has a profound effect on all the characters. And and is is likely to influence... Uh, you know, any subsequent seasons that the show might get, and I'm hoping it does get more seasons. Pure White People really toes the line between tongue-in-cheek comedy and powerful drama, specifically in that in episode five, but also along the way, sort of uh, weaving comedy and drama together in the way that the best storytelling does. And despite some lingering plot threads and some character developments that don't quite add up or are never fully explored, there's a lot to enjoy here. So moving into the cast. So Logan Browning, the actress whose voice you've heard in the in the clip I played steps in for Tessa Thompson she of creed and thor ragnarok who's now a tremendously huge star um dear white people was kind of her pre creed like i always like to think that before any actor has their big break that they have sort of a pre big a pre comeback or a pre big break just for example Robert Downey Jr. had Iron Man, and now he's Robert Downey Jr. again. But before that, he had Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was sort of his low-key indie to sort of be like, hey, I'm here, I'm back, get ready for me, before he hits the big studio thing. And that was Dear White People for Tessa Thompson before Creed. Anyway, Logan Browning, I digress, Logan Browning steps in for Tessa Thompson here as Samantha White the host of the controversial radio program from which Dear White People gets its name. And she assumes this role with complete ease, bringing all the charisma and depth for what is, at, at initially at least, the show's main character. Uh, some of the other Dear White People newcomers are strong as well. I really feel like Logan Browning, from moment one, steps in there and kind of owns this role and makes it her own. And considering she did that, stepping in for Tessa Thompson, who's tremendously talented and, and really kind of anchored the film that that's an achievement in and of itself at the end of the first episode i was already like all right fuck it we got our our new sam she she nails this role and i can't wait to see more of her in it um as i was saying some of the other cast members from the film are here though so none of them really with the, with maybe the exception of logan browning who's toe-to-toe with tessa thompson for me um none of them really managed to outshine their predecessors. You have Daron Horton and Antoinette Robertson here and they really grow into their roles as Lionel Higgins and Coco Connors over the course of the season but I never really felt that they they 100% uh, made me forget about the other actors and they never really they never really became that character in the same way that Logan Browning did with, uh, with Samantha White the way that the way that Tessa Thompson did, and um, that's not to say anything about their performances. But for me, I was still kind of in my mind for a lot of the season, being comparing Deron Horton's to Tyler James Williams or Antoinette Robertson's to Teona Paris. And by the end of the season, they sort of won me over, especially um, especially Antoinette Robertson, because I thought Coco Connor's in the film Tayona Paris's performance was one of the one of the most impactful, and I think that it really set the stage for her to kind of break bigger in Chirac the following year. And uh, by the end of the season, I thought that Antoinette Robertson's take on Coco Connors was very different from what Teona Paris did, but no not lesser. You know what I mean? Like on the on that maybe not better or worse, just different and and, and equally um, equally so. <clears throat> the latter specifically though, no that was my issue with Coco also, she undergone underwent a sp- substantial rewrite for this transition from film to TV. The film focuses on Coco and her her like bid to get famous, and she has a she has a YouTube channel where she does videos that are sort of stir-the pot in the same way that Sam's radio show does. And that is completely missing here. I mean she still wants to, you know, be known and be established and be sort of respected and, and uh, well off and that kind of thing, but her focus slightly shifts, and I think that that, that affects her character. Here and affects her her strength within the role and how how that character reflects modern society and the fact that we now live in the like the, the YouTube generation. Um, I kind of missed that element from the film that the show sort of decided to push aside. Of course, we also have other returning stars from the film: Brandon P. Bell as class president Troy Fairbanks and Mark Richardson as Sam's friend Reggie. The latter of, of for me, is the VIP of the season. He has some of the best, um, some of the best, most most powerful scenes, and he's actually the one that I enjoyed in the film. But the show made me really it's like take a pause and realize what a fucking amazing character that Reggie is. The show developed him that way. The film, he was sort of just kind of a secondary. You could tell he was into Sam, but he didn't. Uh, but he didn't really have as direct a role. He was, he more represented one part of society pressuring Sam to be a certain way. Um, He didn't really have his own character and was not complex enough in the film for me to really embrace Richardson's performance the way he does in this show. And to me, he was the biggest surprise and the one that I came away going, I I wanna see more of that character's story. But overall, we have a really talented group of young stars here taking center stage. Their performances really help sell the premise and the tone that Dear White People is going for, ensuring that its racially uh, racially charged narrative never really slips into anything too offensive, contrary to what some of you might think from the teaser trailer and from some of the marketing. Instead, these characters are all grappling with an imperfect world and trying to suss out a way to survive it all. The show fittingly doesn't depict this issue in black and white, it's much more complex than that and the performances and the cast that Simeon and his team have put together here um, really reflects the the complex nature of the issues that the show is trying to cover. So moving into the production. Okay, so not surprisingly in a show like this, in a satire, and a comedy slash drama, the best part of the production here is, is clearly the writing um, since theme is such an integral part of the storytelling. It, it's... It, it really rises to the top and there's like a lot of that witty dialogue going back and forth and a lot of those sort of um, tense moments that really stem from not only great performances, but but really strong writing across the board here And I know that Simeon, uh, I think wrote at least the, of the, the pilot, maybe even a couple episodes um, but Also, the, there's really decisive direction and, and a very clear vision on display here the production values are are pretty much in sync with the film. I mean, the cinematography, the music. There's even sort of a classical music riff, and the use of narration. Uh, that some of the well, I don't know if the film uses narration, but the film uses title cards to sort of introduce you to the world, and in the show they use narration to sort of do the same effect. And I think it it really helps to um, to get across the fact that this that the show is not a hundred percent. To be taken seriously in its satirical elements, at least. I mean, though there are very dark, serious moments here that are covered, I feel like that that sort of narrative approach really kind of um, helps new view, view, new viewers that aren't familiar with Dear White People as a franchise. I guess now kind of gets them, gives them a crash course, and this is how you should this is how you should be taking this information. And the fact that this whole show is structured in chapters, I think, really does make it feel like a series of short stories or a novel or like a, almost short films that are interwoven. And that kind of goes, also goes hand in hand with the shifting of character perspectives. It all seamlessly captures the aesthetic from the film and, and the message that Simeon was trying to convey there. And it really transports viewers into this complex world of Winchester without missing a beat. So moving into the verdict, in case you can't tell by now, I really enjoyed the show. Um, maybe not quite as much of those as the movie. I feel like the movie because it is able to be watched, uh, to be viewed. Well, I mean, I guess you could watch all ten episodes in one in one sitting. That's a little extreme, but because the film is more of a cohesive unit, I feel like the show doesn't have the same. It does not able to to. It's, be quite as effective as the film is in the messages that it's trying to convey, but ultimately, how you feel about dear white people may depend in part on where you end up, uh, where you wind up on the political spectrum. Um, you know how you feel about a lot of these serious issues, and how strongly you feel about it, how how open-minded you are about about the issue of race, and uh, where you where you stand as far as the complexities of it. Uh, since some of its narrative beats are specifically designed to incite conversation this is definitely one of the shows that you can sit down watch with your significant other or a group of friends and then be like well no i think this character should have handled it this way because blah 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 it's the show's message and the show's point is to is to get a conversation going is to shed light on these issues through the guise of these characters and but for those of you who can't handle a satirical look at some of these serious serious issues. Maybe this is not the show for you. Maybe you you're better off finding something that is going to take these serious issues seriously and is not willing to. And you're if you're not willing to sort of take the comedy as sort of the you know the the uh, what is it the spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down as the entertaining more accessible way to get this conversation started and to get these get this these stories out there. Yes, the show focuses on s- satire and comedy as a vehicle for telling uh, some of these racially charged stories, but it's also not afraid to let the enormity of an event loom large over the story. I mean, I mentioned earlier about how, and this is not a spoiler because it's literally the premise of the, the original premise of the show, of the pilot at least, the Blackface Party. That goes on, that discussion, the aftermath of that goes on for quite a while here, and as I said, there's another event that that takes place at a certain point. And Dear White People could be the next binge-worthy show for you if you are willing to have those conversations and, and let it kind of stir up, um, not stir up racial tensions, but sh- stir up, hopefully, inciting people to come to some kind of solution and take action on this. And the show has, to me, not a racist bone in its body. It's just trying to to uh, comment on what continues to be a critical issue In our society. And you know. Speaking of the title of this episode. Since it is called Dear White People. I know that leads a lot of people to think. Oh we must be racist. But that in and of itself is sort of a a satirical thing. Because Sam's show speaks specifically to the difference between white people and black people. And uh, and, and, you know not everybody in the show is 100% behind her approach to that either. So that in and of itself is sort of a is sort of tongue-in-cheek to begin with. The show really looks to hold up a mirror to society, and it weaves in some in-your-face comedy and some salient political points, but there's a lot more stories likely waiting to be told in Winchester since the show uses this university setting as a microcosm for the racial tension in the world at large. So for me, Dear White People was a ton of fun and very powerful and uh, an easy 4 out of 5. Not quite, it lacked like some of the things I mentioned that that didn't quite work for me. I felt like it was a little disjointed at times. I felt like some of the characters were underrepresented. I felt like there were story opportunities there that were not fully fleshed out. And others that were there but didn't really seem uh, satisfying or didn't seem to come to a, some, a, a conclusion that uh, that really warranted all the time that was spent on it. But again, some of that is you know they're clearly hoping to get a season two, and that's there's nothing here that can't easily be picked up on in season two and developed to to my personal satisfaction. So uh, that's all for this week. I hope you liked my review of Dear White People. I highly encourage you, uh, those of you with Netflix accounts, to check it out. It's very entertaining, and I think uh, I, I I hope it'll be another one of those Netflix shows that drops and then like a week or two later that gets greenlit for another season because i'd love to see more of this and hey if we're getting season three of fuller house it's like come on guys Let, let's let's make this happen let's make dear white people a thing so um in the meantime you can subscribe rate and review the podcast on itunes follow me on twitter at Crooked Table. i'm also on the Crooked Table has a facebook page we're also on the other social medias we're even now on Stitcher. You can find the link for all the stuff I just mentioned below in the show notes. Also find more podcast, videos, reviews, and other movie-related goodies at crookedtable.com. Next week, I'm going to be discussing a little independent film by... No, I'm just kidding. Of course, we're going to hit Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And some coverage of the greater MCU. Maybe even a Let's Talk About Six. We'll see. I have to iron out that idea. But that'll be all next week. Until then, I've been Rob. Roll credits. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Well, there you go. You're getting another encore. It's been a long time. I don't even remember when the last time I did an encore segment was, and this is probably, I think maybe the first one that I've done by myself because that really kind of started as a me and Freddie thing. And since Freddie hasn't really been on the podcast lately, I uh, I haven't. I've just like just kind of dropped it. But this week, in addition to Beauty, and the... it sounds like I've I spent all week just watching TV. I, I swear I do actually do other things. I have work to do, and I have a child to raise and. I have a wife to spend time with and family and stuff, Uh, but I, in addition to Beauty and the Beast, The Circle, and, uh, well, Dear White People, I watched a while ago, so there you go. I'm not as, I'm not as, uh, as couch potato bound as you might, as you might assume, but I did see Sky High, the 2005 Disney superhero comedy adventure, I guess, uh, on Netflix um I think basically what happened is that this is a film that I've been meaning to watch for a long time. Uh just because I was curious about it and uh Kurt Russell's been talking about it randomly while promoting Guardians 2 and I was just like, "You know what? Fuck it. I'm I'm watching my daughter. She's kind of like in the swing hanging out relaxing or she's sleeping on me, whatever. Let me let me pop on Sky High and see if I if you know, if it's if it's worth watching or if it's kind of terrible and I'll shut it off after 20 minutes." And it was very cute. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. I Actually, in addition to Kurt Russell, we have Kelly Preston. And they play sort of uh, veteran superheroes. Sending their son, who secretly hasn't gotten his powers yet, to the titular Sky High. Which is essentially a school for superheroes. And that opens up all kinds of fun supporting roles for people like Bruce Campbell and Dave Foley. And, uh, and Linda Carter as the principal, Wonder Woman herself, and um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead plays a uh, sort of popular girl at the school, and Daniel Panabaker from The Flash, Caitlin Snow slash Killer Frost herself. So there was a lot of, as um, knowing the cast and the premise, there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, not anticipation, but there was a, little, a lot of curiosity on my end for finally checking out this film that, Came out in 2005, and then I sort of was wondering if it was if it was be if it was worth watching, but then I think the following year that other movie Tim Allen movie uh, Zoom came out in 2006, and I think those two sort of got jumbled together in my head. Um, I believe Sky High has become more of has has more of a cult following than Zoom has. I think pretty much everybody's forgotten that movie. Uh, and knowing the Tim Allen movies that I've seen, it, it's other than the original Santa Claus, probably for the best. But Sky High was a lot of fun. It was um, there's a lot of humor in it that's very, you know, very kid-friendly, sort of pandering. Um, but be- besides the fact that the story is sort of predictable in some ways, there's there are enough twists and turns and sort of weird, quirky uh, superpowers that people have, and uh, kind of the the framework of a a very enjoyable sort of family adventure film. Um, and it's something that I could easily see myself putting on for my kids one day. And it's my biggest thought and takeaway from it that I, I mentioned to Kai after I watched it was that this was totally the kind of movie that if I saw this when I was 10 as opposed to in my 30s, this would have been like my favorite fucking movie. This would have this, like I would totally would have been blown away by the sort of Incredibles slash uh, Harry Potter crossover uh, of this concept. And, I, and knowing, you know, you guys know how much I love superheroes. I feel like I talk about a superhero movie every other week on this podcast. Um, but knowing that that, you know, how how interesting and like kid-friendly a take on that genre this film has i would have been completely in love with this film had i seen it in like the you know the early to mid 90s when i was when i was the right age seeing it now i'm like oh this is this is a cute movie a lot of interesting stuff oh that's funny i, I see where this is going and and all the actors that i mentioned are are completely charming. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, of course, this is the youngest I've ever seen her in a movie because I actually didn't discover her for myself until um, Death Proof two years later. But, um, of course, Kurt Russell is great and everything. And Danielle Pennebecker, I didn't know she was so cute. I didn't know she was around back in these days. I wasn't aware that she was a child actor. She's really charming here. And you can see a lot of the charisma that she brings to Caitlin on The Flash. You can see that in full effect here. A, you know, just in her teenage years as she was uh, sort of starring in this Disney film. This, like, relatively obscure Disney film from the mid-2000s. Uh, of course, I don't want to go without the whole whole review without talking about Michael Anganera. Uh, Michael Angarano. Sorry, Michael. Um, who, who's really, he's really, again, really charming and charismatic here as the, the main character, Will Stronghold. So, is it a perfect movie? No, fuck no. But it has enough—it has enough of a sort of, sort of spy kids slash incredible slash Harry Potter thing going for it that, it yes, it feels slightly derivative and sort of, uh, kind of these, the, kind of the kind of film, the type of film that would be born out of a focus group of well, people like this and people like this. Let's put them together and make something. But that doesn't mean it's—it's it's a wholly un. You know, unsatisfying watch. It is. It is a fun film to check out, especially if you have kids who are into superhero stuff, and they're not exactly old enough for Logan or uh, or uh, you know Suicide Squad or, or Deadpool or some of these other more violent, darker material. Like if I had a an eight year old, a ten year old, uh, a six year old, I don't know some other evenly numbered child age, I I wouldn't take my I wouldn't take my six year old to go see Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. But a movie like this is perfect for little kids who wanna see something superhero that's uplifting but not too violent that the parents will be will be questioning it and uh, still has that same kind of uh, spirit of adventure and everything behind it. Um, the film was actually directed by Mike Mitchell who did Trolls, which I did not really enjoy. You can read my review on, we got this covered for that. As well as Shrek Ever After and Deuce Bigelow Male Gigolo, so this guy's been all over the place. Um, he's actually slated to do the Lego movie sequel, which is coming out in, uh, I believe, 2019. So, uh, so yeah, it's Sky High. It's probably already on your. Uh, well, should, if you're in the U.S., <clears throat> excuse me. If you're in the U.S., you should have access to it in your streaming uh, streaming service already. But I would definitely check it out if it sounds interesting based on what I'm saying. Not not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, <clears throat> but a but a fun one, especially for for families to watch together. And uh, since it's twelve years old, it's not exactly a movie that is is you know uh, top of mind these days. But you know, I watched it and I was like, that was pleasant enough to watch. And I have a podcast, so you know what? Screw it. Why don't I just talk about Sky High as an encore? So. Uh, I hope you enjoyed me talking about Sky High and maybe you know maybe if I have other things to to talk about I'll continue doing encore uh, segments going forward just talking about older films or music I've been listening to or anything that's not necessarily um, I guess trending or newsworthy or timely in the moment kind of stuff but um, yeah so that's Sky High definitely check it out if it sounds interesting based on what I said. Or if you have kids who who would be into that, it's it's totally safe uh, film to just put on for the kids while you're while you're you're away or while you're doing other things in the next room or whatever. So um, check it out on Netflix. And that's all I have for now. And I'll see you guys next week. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. <laughs>